Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Luis Dinarte. Luis is an economist in the human development team of the World Bank's Development Research Group. Luis, welcome to the show. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for having me here. We are going to talk today about your research on anti-violence programs for school children in El Salvador. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Okay, sure. So I am a research economist of the Development Research Group at the World Bank, and my primary research fields are education and development economics, with a focus on human capital and crime. The main goal of my overall agenda is to study, in a rigorous way, the impact of some policies that aim to promote the optimal human capital accumulation for people living in low- and middle-income countries, particularly in Central America. A particular strand of my agenda examines how specific educational interventions and also the way how they are implemented can determine students' cognitive and non-cognitive outcomes, including social-emotional skills and violent behaviors. Uh, as you mentioned, in this talk, we are going to discuss two of my works on after-school programs and violent behaviors in El Salvador. Why did I become interested in this topic? Well, existing evidence indicates that violence and crime in general can increase the economic cost of health and justice services. Uh, that can be great obstacles to economic growth. Particularly in El Salvador and similarly to other countries in Central America, crime levels are so high that, for instance, since 2009, El Salvador has been declared as a victim of an epidemic of violence. In 2015, for instance, the homicide rate among boys with ages between 10 to 19 years was 66 murders, more than 12 times the worldwide homicide rates the same year, making El Salvador one of the world's five deadliest places for young boys. What are then the consequences of these high levels of violence? First of all, there are they can hinder human capital accumulation. El Salvador, for instance, has experienced a 13% reduction in its school enrollment rate, with over 18% of students reporting that they dropped school due to delinquency. Another concern is uh, the snowball effect of violence. Anna Dam and Christian Dusmond, in their paper in 2014, find that exposure of adolescents and children to violent neighborhoods increased the subsequent criminal behavior. Considering the Salvadoran context, context and the existing evidence, I started this project aiming to identify how the risk factors of violence can be addressed. I found out that after-school programs can constitute a natural setup for this objective. Why? Because they are examples of programs that can provide two services. First, protection. They can keep children under formal supervision to prevent victimization and violent behaviors. And also, they can provide a learning service. They can act as an alternative source of social development, especially when they include a specific curriculum oriented to foster social-emotional skills, for instance, and control of impulsive behaviors in particular. And that's how I identify and partner with a local NGO in El Salvador, Glasgow International, with extensive experience working on after-school clubs in Central America. So your paper is titled Preventing Violence in the Most Violent Contexts, Behavioral and Neurophysiological Evidence from El Salvador, and it's co-authored with Pablo Igana, 
In it, you consider the effects of an after-school program, as you mentioned, that incorporated cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT for short, as well as other activities. So tell us more about this program. Where did it take place and what were the activities like? Sure. So this after-school program was implemented in five public schools located in highly violent communities in El Salvador. According to the intervention theory of change, the main objective of this program is to successfully modify children's violence, misbehavior, and also attitudes towards the acquisition of life skills, and that's expected to also improve their academic performance. The after-school program consisted on clubs that met twice a week for approximately one and a half hours per session, right after school ended. Each session has two parts, social skills development and the traditional club curriculum. The first section is common to all participants, and it includes activities oriented to foster socio-emotional skills. Some of them were inspired by CBT activities. Specifically, it tries to raise participant awareness of certain behaviors to disrupt these patterns and also promote their better ones using a learning-by-doing approach. It includes topics such as conflict and impulsiveness management, self-discipline, and soft skills. As one example, if the topic was impulsive management, then students participate in this role play, where the instructor asked them to provide alternatives to get something from a clubmate. Some of them suggested to retrieve the object either by hitting it or hitting the clubmate, which is their automatic response how they are used to respond. Then the tutor discussed with them some alternatives, such as negotiation or simply asking for the object. Then that's the first part. The second one, it included some extracurricular activities related to each club category, such as art, culture, sports, and science. The objective of this section was to motivate students to participate, making the learning process more fun and interactive and also increasing the attendance to the after-school program. Just to give you an example of the second uh, uh, section, in the science category, Discovery Clubs offer students the opportunity to do experiments, such such as mock volcano eruptions. In the sports category, children played uh, soccer or basketball, among others. So that's the structure of this, the intervention. So when the practitioners were setting up this program and decided to include both the social skills development and these other activities like art or experiments, rather than just the social skills component alone, was there was the hope that the other activities would add additional value or were they just there as a carrot to get kids to sign up? Well, this means approach is, can be more effective than a full therapy intervention in the Salvadorian context because at the ages of our target group, uh, which were between 10 to 16 years of age, uh, that's when in El Salvador appears this, the greatest manifestation of violence. Um, as you can imagine, adolescents may find it also unappealing to learn impulsiveness management and self-discipline alone. Thus, to warrant the participants' attendance, it was necessary to complement the therapy with some recreational activities. That was one part. In addition, public spaces to play are not used very often in El Salvador because of the fear of exposure to violence. Therefore, warranting this time for recreation in a secure space made intervention also more interesting for the participants. So they were more a way to guarantee participation from the students. 
And as you just mentioned, the program targeted students ages 10 to 16. So tell us more about why this age group was considered the most important to include. Yeah, so it was for two reasons. First, because soft skills are malleable during adolescence, according to the evidence pointed out by James Heckman and Tim Kautz in their paper 2012. also, soft skills can predict and affect individual success in life. The second reason is that anecdotal evidence in El Salvador indicates that at this age is when adolescents are more prone to be violent or to enroll in gangs. We are aware that some adolescents in the country have no more options than just be part of a gang. With this intervention, we aim to just tag these children as having special skills skills that are not what gangs need for their operations. Unfortunately, the context didn't allow us to measure the extensive margin of gang affiliation, just changes on soft skills. Specifically, the dangerous context of public schools in El Salvador prevented us from directly asking students about whether they were a part of a gang during the registration phase or even during the follow-up. So, okay, so let's talk about the empirical challenges to studying the effects of programs like this. When we see interesting programs out in the real world, we might be tempted to just compare people who participated in those programs with people who didn't. But of course, there could be lots of reasons those two groups have different outcomes that have nothing to do with the program itself. Maybe the participants are more motivated or from wealthier families or something like that. So as you became interested in studying this program, what were the primary hurdles to understanding whether this particular program has beneficial effects? Yeah, sure. So I can identify at least three issues to study the effectiveness of an after-school program in a highly violent context. The first one, as you briefly mentioned, there are some identification issues. In an after-school program context, it's difficult to have a credible comparison group for several reasons. One of them is that in some cases, participation is voluntary, and we may expect that the most motivated students are the only one who wants to be enrolled. And then comparing enrolled with non-enrolled children may actually identify a biased effect of this intervention. A second issue, and related also to the first point, are the presence of spillovers. We learn from our peers all the time, especially behaviors, and from those which we are exposed most of the time to. If you implement an intervention in which beneficiaries and non-beneficiaries are in contact, which is the case of schools and students in classrooms, you will definitely have some spillovers. We call it contamination in economics, and it can affect the exact measure of the impact since we can under or overestimate the true effect of a program. Finally, the third issue is data restrictions. I'll say that that was actually the main challenge of doing empirical work in a low and middle income countries, according to my experience. In particular, educational systems in these countries focus on collecting basic information on school enrollment, attendance, and in some cases, some measures of academic performance. However, there is lack of data on non-cognitive outcomes, such as social-emotional skills, violent behaviors, and others. If we also add a highly violent context in this equation, then data collection becomes the most important issue here because we cannot collect all the data that we may be interested into. And we will talk about a bunch about those data that you're able to collect, but but before this study, what had we known about the effectiveness of 
after-school programs broadly and CBT-based programs in particular? Okay, so, well, regarding the evidence of the effectiveness of after-school programs on delinquent behavior, for instance, this evidence is mixed and inconclusive. Some early papers showed that uh, these after-school programs are interventions that can protect children by preventing victimization or delinquent behavior. However, a recent systematic review and meta-analysis developed by Sima, Tahiri, and Brandon Welch show mixed results from some well-known evaluations. They, their analysis is based on 17 studies, and they find that the, there is evidence that after-school programs had a small but non-significant effect on delinquency of around 0.06 standard deviations. The author's main conclusion is that if we want after-school programs to be effective, then we must include some elements uh, with a focus on develop delinquency prevention. In other words, as I discussed before, we should exploit the potential of after-school programs as an alternative source of learning and social development. Moreover, uh, despite an increase in the number of these sort of programs, implemented over the past years and the high incidence and economic cost of crimes in low- and middle-income countries, most of the existing literature of the impact of these programs are using data from high-income countries, where the issue of violence is not as relevant as those as the in low- and middle-income countries. Then, regarding the evidence on cognitive behavioral therapy in particular, there is a recent white paper from JPAL, led by Thomas Abt, Chris Blattman, Beatrice Magalone, and Santiago Tobon, that indicates that CBT is an approach that leads to at least temporary behavior change among juveniles and adults across different settings, from uh, youth in Chicago to uh, older adults in Liberia. Moreover, recent economic evidence has been analyzing mechanisms underlying the impact of these CBT-inspired programs such as changes in self-control, time preferences, social skills, and social identity. There are two seminal papers that study this type of intervention and their mechanism in the literature in economics. The first one, Sarah Heller and co-authors experimentally studied the program Becoming a Man implemented in Chicago. What they find is that participation in the program reduced total and violent crime arrest and also improved school engagement. Another seminal paper in this literature literature in economics is the one authored by Chris Blattman, Julian Jameson, and Margaret Sheridan. The authors studied the complementarities between CBT and also cash transfers and how they are they can reduce crime. What they are finding is that both cash alone and therapy alone initially can reduce crime and violence. However, these effects dissipate over time. What really works in an intermediate term, is the combination between cash followed by therapy. So you took advantage of the fact that more students wanted to participate in this program in El Salvador uh, than the organization could accommodate and randomized which school kids got in. This means you had a randomized controlled trial, an RCT, with a control group that allows you to measure the effectiveness of the program on the kids that participated. It's often quite difficult to convince policymakers and practitioners to run an RCT like this. So could you give us some background on how this experiment came about? You are totally right. (laughs) Counterpart and policymaker and practitioner is usually one of the most complicated tasks. 
when you are preparing an IPAT evaluation and you want to propose an experimental design. There were several rounds of discussion with the NGO about this. For instance, first, I presented them all the non-experimental alternatives that are available to evaluate programs and their specific requirements. At the end, we agreed that there was no chance to evaluate intervention using a non-experimental approach. For instance, uh, we didn't have data, past data, on academic performance or violent behaviors to implement a differences in different approach. For this reason, we agreed with the NGO that the best way to implement the impact evaluation was through a, a RCT, or a, a experimental evaluation. But after you convince your implementing partner, you have to also convince the participants. We needed to convince not only school principals and teachers, but also students and parents that the fairest way to assign the available slots for the after school to the children was through a lottery. Um, since the program was going to be implemented in the future at each school, so there will be more opportunities to those not attending in 2016. And that was the argument that we used with them. We were then able to collect information at follow-up from children in the control group because we gave them like a enrollment coupon, which they can redeem the year after the end that guaranteed their participation in the traditional clubs in the 2017 academic year. So, okay. So you randomly assign the kids who want to participate in this program um, into several groups. You have a control group where the kids don't get to participate that year, but it sounds like they got, they got to participate the following year. Um, but then you have three different treatment groups. So tell us about each of these groups and a little bit about why you did this. Okay, sure. Uh, so, what I wanted to, to learn was not only whether intervention worked or not, which is uh, which I will address just having a treat, uh, treatment and comparison group. However, I also was interested in learning how this intervention could be implemented and exploit the potential peer effects. From the existing evidence, it's not clear whether integration or segregation in terms of violence can have better effects on the outcomes that we are analyzing. Um, on the one hand, you can you can say that integration can be beneficial, especially for the most violent individuals, because they are exposed to good peers. However, concerns related to potential contamination of the less violent participants or budget restrictions can make practitioners to separate the students by their violent behavior and or focus on treating just the most violent ones. For this reason, I designed a tracking by violence experiment. It was inspired by two works, uh, uh, the paper of uh, Esther Stuflo, Pascal Intupas, and Michael Kramer in 2011, and also the paper of John Lafortu, Marcela Perticara, and Jose Tessal in 2016. It consists in the following. Uh, I estimated the propensity for violence of each enrolled child, and uh, they were assigned to two groups, to a control and a treatment. Then in a second randomization stage, I randomly assign students in the treatment group to a particular composition of peers in terms of violence. In other words, to a sub-treatment arm. 25% of them were assigned to a heterogeneous composition of peers regarding violence and 50% to a homogeneous treatment arm. Within this homogeneous treatment, I ranked all the students and assigned to subgroups according to their index, 
all students with a propensity for violence greater than the median at the stratum level were assigned to the high violent group and the rest to the low violence group. So here, comparing treated and control, I can uh, I can measure the impact of these uh, the intervention. But then, com by comparing each of these subtreatment are heterogeneous or homogeneous composition of peer, I can generate evidence on how the composition of peers can have some differences in the impacts on misbehavior, academic performance, among others. That's great. Yes, and the the main results we're going to talk about shortly are going to be the average of all, across all those treatment groups. But then we will dig in later to what we're learning from these different treatment groups. It's a really um, clever design. Um, so randomizing kids across the groups allows you to measure the causal effect of the program on outcomes. But the other crucial piece, as you mentioned, uh, is data. So you used a mix of administrative data and survey data to measure the effectiveness of this program. Tell us about those data sets. Okay, sure. So during the enrollment phase, before intervention, we collected two strands of data. First, enrolled students provided personal and family information on the registration forms. For instance, we gathered information on their age, gender, household composition, mother's education, among other characteristics. We also collected school records of grades, behavior reports, and absenteeism data from both enrolled and non-enrolled children. Then, at the end of the intervention, after seven months of implementation, follow-up data on non-cognitive outcomes were collected, but only from the general participants in school facilities, those who consent to give us access to their, their information. Uh, so this was at the end of October 2016, more or less, after all clubs completed their curricula. The follow-up survey included questions to measure interventions' impact on students' attitudes towards school and learning and also violent behaviors. Due to limitations of the report the data, we attempted to also recheck and validate these behaviors using proxies for these outcomes obtained from admin data. For example, school attendance in school records is a good proxy for a student's positive motivation towards school and learning. In addition, misbehavior at schools reported by teachers is also a good proxy for violent behaviors. Finally, at the end of the academic year, schools provide the reports of grades as part of our follow-up data. And then when you divide the kids based on their propensity for violence and one in the at least two of the two of the three treatment groups, what information do you use to predict that propensity um, in terms of the baseline data? And then in general, what do the kids in the high risk group look like compared with the kids in the low risk group? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, the dangerous public schools context in El Salvador prevented us from directly asking students about violence during the enrollment phase. Um, this could endanger not only the intervention, but also, and most importantly, the children. So to address this constraint, and because the design required to have this propensity for violence or a measure of violence, uh, and to create this uh, proxy, I follow Dana Chandler, Stephen Lewitt, and John List, in their 2011 paper, and I estimated a predictive model of violence and crime from an existing data set of a similar population also in El Salvador. So it had two stages. In the first one, I estimated the likelihood of having committed a violent act as a function of a wide, wide range of covariates, such 
as student characteristics, let's say age, gender, time spent alone at home, uh, other children's household variables, such as the residence area, mother's education, the household composition, which is also very relevant in El Salvador, given by the violence and also migration patterns, and also some school-level controls. Using uh, this existing data set of FUSADES, 18 in El Salvador, and this data was included information of also youth living in uh, violent communities. Then in a second stage, I exploited the availability of these variables in the reg registration forms of disenrolled students in my study. So I use uh, these variables to predict the measure of propensity for violence for each child using the vector of estimated coefficients from the first stage. Okay, um, so let's talk about the main results now. What do you find is the effect of being assigned to the treatment group on kids' academic outcomes and behavior? So, well, compared to students in the control group, I am finding that after-school program participants report having better attitudes towards school by 0.17 standard deviations, and also they report spending 16% more time each day doing their homework. This improvement in attitudes is also confirmed when we use administrative data. We are finding that treated students reduced their school absenteeism by 23% compared to the control group. These magnitudes are actually pretty important according to comparable studies. Then in terms of balance behaviors, we are finding that after seven months of this program, the students are reporting having committed fewer delinquent actions and being less violent compared to the reports of the students in the control group. The magnitudes are between 0.14 to 0.19 standard deviations. Similar effects are found when we also use the teacher's report of students' misbehaviors. In particular, we are finding that when students were randomly assigned to participate in the program, they reduced both their bad behavior at school by more or less 0.17 standard deviations and the probability of having a misbehavior report, the extensive margin, by six uh, points. Uh, moreover, although this program do not relate directly to academic outcomes because they are not learning during the after-school program something about with math or reading, etc., we are finding evidence, or, or there is in the literature actually evidence, of a positive correlation between academic results and social skills. We are finding, in, according to our results, that this program has a positive effect on grades, with magnitudes that are between 0.11 and 0.13 as standard deviations. Uh, the question here is how this intervention that only teaches social skills indirectly affects participant academic grades. There can be at least uh, two explanations. First, the after-school program can actually modify students' classroom misconduct, reducing disruptions that affect their learning or that of their classmates. Second, the literature in economics and also in psychology shows that cognitive skills in academic performance are defined by non-cognitive skills, such as future orientation and attitudes towards school and learning. So those are the two plausible explanations of how this intervention is also generating some effects on academic performance.
You then consider both spillover effects and peer effects of the program. So you're interested in whether the kids from the control group might indirectly benefit because they're in a, in a classroom during the day with program participants. In other words, you're interested in whether the behavior change caused by the program might rub off in some way on the control group. So how do you test for this and what do you find? Yeah, so the argument behind the relevance of a spillover is that treated students can spread their improved nonviolent behaviors to non-treated classmates via at least two channels. The first one is a better school climate. And if treated children are less disruptive during classes or if they behave better, then this can reduce violence between, uh, within schools. Uh, the second one is that the interaction between treated and untreated students can also allow the last group to imitate or learn some skills from the former. So uh, those are the arguments why measuring spillovers in this context was also relevant. In this design, I have samples of enrolled children, which includes the treated and comparison group, and non-enrolled children those who decide not to participate into the after-school program. And then I exploit a non-experimental variation in the share of students who were randomized to treatment across courses to estimate the spillover effects. What are the assumptions to identify these effects here? Well, since the assignment on to the treatment was done as at the school by education level block, and each level includes three courses, the share of enrolled children allocated to participate in the program at each course was quasi-exogenous. After controlling, of course, by the share of students at each course who decide to enroll. Considering this, we followed the model developed by Scott Carell and Marco Crestra to measure the after-school program spillover effects on non-enrolled students. And what I'm finding is actually something pretty important and interesting. Our results indicate that the interaction of students with a greater share of after-school program participants generates positive effects on their academic grades and also reduce their bad behavior at school. Actually, we find that the effects are pretty important. Adding three treated students in a classroom of 22 increases academic achievement up to point, uh, point 0.10 standard deviations and also reduce bad behavior report by almost point 0.15 standard deviations. So the results we were discussing before are actually lower bounds of the total effect from these type of interventions. Right. And then just to clarify, that's the downward bias and the treatment effect you're measuring is because the, con- the control group, as you're showing here, is, is effectively treated somewhat too. Um, and so, so you're going to measure the, the net effect of that. Um, okay. So then you actually have a second paper that digs into peer effects a bit more. That paper is called Peer Effects on Violence, Experimental Evidence in El Salvador. You use multiple treatment groups, as we discussed, to consider whether it matters who's in the program with you. That is, you're interested in whether peer effects within the program can increase or decrease the program's effectiveness. So remind us how you're testing for this and tell us what you find. Okay, sure. As you may recall, we discussed that within the treatment arm, I I ran a second randomization and assigned 25% of the student to a heterogeneous composition of peer and 50% to a homogeneous treatment arm. Heterogeneous in this context means that, for instance, if we have a propensity for violence that goes from 1 to 100, then heterogeneous composition means that all children with any propensity for violence are going to be treated together. 
together. Homogeneous composition, on the other hand, means that if it's a high violent homogeneous group, then you are going to have just children with a propensity for violence between 51 to 100. And a low violent homogeneous group is going to be formed by students with a propensity of 1 to 50. So I here I compare each of these treatment arms, homogeneous or heterogeneous, with the control group. I also estimate some heterogeneous effects by initial propensity for violence between the two treatment arms, between the two group compositions, and also I estimate the effects on the marginal students. Let's talk first about the, the results when I compare uh, the group composition effects. First of all, my results indicate that from the comparison between each uh, treatment arm, homogeneous or heterogeneous, with the control group, any group composition can be more effective than no treatment in the improvement of behaviors, emotional regulation, and academic performance. Then, when I compare both treatment arms between each other, the estimated results indicate that the heterogeneous composition of peers have better impact on most of the outcomes than the tracking by violence treatment arm. These results are consistent with the evidence that interaction with diverse peers can generate differences in the learning experience. These results may also have different interpretations. First, that diversity regarding violence can be more beneficial because, because it allows high-violence students to be exposed to the less violent children. And they can therefore learn social skills and good behaviors from them. Similarly, it seems that, according to my results, low-violence children are not being contaminated. On the contrary, they are benefiting from being exposed to misbehaviors that, that they must avoid. However, students in a homogeneous composition of peer are losing the opportunity to learn from behaviors of the other tail or the other half of the violence distribution function. And then finally, in, in the second paper, you also test for what happens to the marginal student, so the kid who's just on the edge of being assigned to the low-risk or high-risk treatment group, the student will either be the highest risk kid in the low risk group or the lowest risk kid in the high risk group. Um, so how do you test for how group assignment affects this kid and what do you find? Well, yeah, so that's the third part of this, uh, the results from this paper. And to test the effects on the marginal students, the homogeneous group actually provide a natural setup for a regression discontinuity design with a median of the propensity for violence distribution in a of the stratum has a discontinuity. What I'm finding here is that being the least violent in a highly violent group negatively affect behavioral and emotional regulation related outcomes and also academic performance. For example, my results indicate that assigning a marginal student to a group of peers with a high their propensity for violence reduced her self-report of attitudes towards school and learning by 0.6 standard deviation. That's a huge negative impact. And also increased the probability of failing at least one course by almost five points. This is consistent with the existing evidence of Billings and Co-author that the, there is an endogenous formation of groups of badly behaved students when they are segregated. They are, as we mentioned before, they are losing the opportunity to learn from, from other peers with a different propensity for violence or with different behaviors. 
So I, I want to talk about the mechanisms driving all these effects, but let's pause for a moment to summarize all of these results because um, we've talked about a lot of them on the pure effects and spillovers. So what are the main takeaways from your experiment for practitioners who want to implement a program aimed at reducing violent or risky behaviors? Who should they target and how should they assign them to groups to maximize the program's effects? Yeah, so the results indicate that the after-school program works in the context of a highly violent and low-income country. It increases not only attitudes towards school and learning, but it also is improving misbehavior at school and also academic performance. In terms of spillover, non-enrolled students are also benefiting from this intervention. My results indicate that being exposed to a greater share of treated classmates improve their, their non-enrolled role children's misbehavior at school and academic performance. In addition, the way this intervention is implemented is also relevant. There are important peer effects on non-cognitive outcomes that can be exploited to increase the effectiveness of this program. The tracking by violence experiment is showing that the improvements on non-cognitive skills and stress reduction are larger when participants are in more diverse or heterogeneous groups than in segregated ones, ones in terms of violence for both high and low violence children. In other words, despite there may be important budget restrictions for implementing this program that can tempt practitioners and policymakers to focus on treating just highly violent children, this can generate actually unintended effects of this intervention and end up affecting mostly the ones that are supposed to benefit fit from, from and more from it, which are those with a greater propensity for violence. Okay, so let's talk about mechanisms. Uh, let's go back to the initial paper we were discussing. You actually measure the brain activity of students to better understand how the after-school program is affecting their behavior. Uh, that is incredibly cool. So tell us more about <laughs> that. How do you measure their brain activity? Thanks, Jen. So, well, according to recent evidence, the type of emotions that the individuals felt is relevant of many of their cognitive and behavioral outcomes. And uh, the evidence also points out that uh, these emotions can determine how people respond to some stimuli. In this sense, our argument from this uh, design is that if a student is able to control their emotions and automatic responses, then she will be capable to control violent behaviors, and therefore it will be a mechanism of our main results. Having these uh, facts, uh, this evidence in mind, what we did with Pablo Elaña is uh, to rely on emotion detection theory from affective neuroscience literature, and we use low-cost portable electroencephalogram recordings to obtain a proxy measure of children's emotional state and responsiveness to stimuli. In other and simpler words, we brought these electroencephalograms to the field, which are just like a headset. We brought them to the field, schools, and then we exposed children to some images that generated positive, negative, or neutral stimuli to the children. Then, while we were showing them these pictures, we were capturing and saving students' brain responses to, do, to such stimuli. 
using those recordings, we then estimate the proxies of the stress and emotional regulation. According to the neuroscience literature, arousal is a proxy for stress and also balance is a proxy for emotional regulation or of the overreaction to particular stimuli. So using this new data, what are the results? What do you learn about why the after-school program had such big effects on academic outcomes and bad behavior? Yeah, so the impacts we estimated on these uh, neurophysiological outcomes indicate that the program reduced the overreaction of participants, particularly to positive stimuli. This effect is important since children are like uh, more cool-minded and that seems to translate into a better behavior at school. Our mediation analysis is also confirming that, that, that result. However, heterogeneous analysis by propensity for violence at baseline unexpectedly shows that there is an increase on stress level of uh, treated students. Uh, the group composition analysis is also showing that the increase on stress levels is important for both high and low violence students that were assigned to the homogeneous composition of peers. This result is also aligned with our previous conclusion that tracking by violence can have some negative effects, even in mental health, as we are showing here. What can be what could be a potential explanation for these results? Where well, maybe diversity is the social norm where these children usually perform. That's why they are used to. Thus assigning them to just similar peers in making may make them more stressed. As I mentioned before, selecting and treating together the only high balance students for these programs can generate an, some unintended effects from this intervention, particularly to the children who we are supposed to benefit to. So both of these papers have been circulating for a little, a little while now. Uh, what other research has come out since you first ran this experiment that's relevant to the effectiveness of CBT, or more broadly, how to reduce violence among high-risk students. Yeah, actually, in a joint project with Claudia Martinez from the Pontifical Catholic University in Chile and Pablo Gaña, we have extended this project and we are aiming to disentangle the protection and learning channels of a after-school program. Uh, with the experimental design we have been discussing in these two previous works, I am not not able to rigorously separate if the effects are driven because children are protected under this supervision after school time or if they are exposed to a specific socio-emotional skills development, if they are learning something from these uh, new activities. This project, the new project that we are working on with Claudia and Pablo, uh, is right now in the field and is being implemented in public schools in Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. So the idea here to disentangle the, the mechanism, the protection and learning, we are we have assigned some schools to uh, the business as usual, just the these uh, extracurricular activities, and other schools are assigned to plus to the extracurricular activities plus the particular uh, curricula on uh, this uh, this type of intervention, such as mindfulness or other psychological programs. Uh, in addition to high-risk students as the target population, I am also investigating the impacts of these psychological programs on 
other groups that are also affected by high levels of stress, such as police officers. With a team constituted by Sofia Amaral from IFO in Germany, Pablo Egaña, and Tateo Perez and Patricio Dominguez from the Inter-American Development Bank, we are now designing the impact evaluation of a mental health intervention for police officers in El Salvador. We are going to implement this, uh, this program with the partnering with a local NGO in the country. And the plan is uh, to run a pilot next year and then the impact evaluation during the 2021 year. Those both sound like really cool projects. Um, so putting it all together, the results of this study and the other studies we've talked about, what are the policy implications of this work? Well, I'll summarize the whole project in three main takeaways. First, an after-school programs that includes social-emotional learning works to reduce both violent behaviors in schools and also to improve academic performance in the context of a highly violent country. It is also important to highlight that despite my experimental design doesn't allow me to disentangle the learning and protection mechanism, suggestive results from my existing data indicate that the learning component may be the main driver of these effects. However, that's something that we are aiming to show with this new project in this, these three countries in the region. Second, the intervention has important multiplier effects. The impacts are positive not only for the directly treated students, but also for those non-enrolled that are in contact with these treated children. And third, how this intervention is implemented is also relevant. There are important peer effects on non-cognitive outcomes that can be exploited to increase the effectiveness of this intervention. Uh, the tracking by violence experiment, for instance, shows that diversity is super important. In other words, despite there may be important budget restrictions for implementing this program, focusing only on highly violent children can generate unintended effects of this intervention, particularly on neurophysiological outcomes such as stress. So you already talked a little bit about ongoing projects that you have, but let's let's explore the research frontier a little bit more. What are the big open questions in this space that you and others that work in this area will be thinking about in the years ahead? Yeah, so I'll say that there are several open questions here. First of all, what are the long-term effects of these programs? Are they sustained over time? It's not clear yet. And given that after one year of the intervention in, uh, in this uh, the project that we have been discussing today, the control group was also treated. So my design might not allow me to measure long-term effects. Uh, also, more intensive intervention might be relevant if this highly in this highly violent context, particularly to modify some more rude uh, decisions such as enrollment in gangs. For example, we could study complementarities of these after-school programs and other interventions that can help to address some issues for this youth, such as cash transfers, because the economic restrictions can also play an important role here. Then, in terms of implementation and to increase effectiveness of the program, I'll say that another research opportunity here is to analyze uh, students' networks and try to exploit uh, the structure of such networks to achieve even greater impacts. If we, for instance, treat um, just the node, the central node of their network, 
may we may have a greater effects from these from these programs or should we actually treat all the children because it seems that their interactions are playing an important role here and finally uh, we are and this is actually something important that we have been discussing here in the bank we are implementing interventions that aim to maintain children in schools however a relevant assumption here is that schools are safer places for children than streets or their households which is not necessarily true in several countries so in this case shall we then move and implement these programs in other domains such as household communities when uh, in these countries where uh, schools are not necessarily safer spaces for for the children so i would say that those are like some big open questions that are still around and that we may start working on them very soon lots of work to do my guest today has been Lelise Sinarte from the World Bank. Lelise, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Jen, for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to continue talking about these topics. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show, and thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener-supported, so if you enjoy the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is Carolyn Hockenberry, with production assistance from Elizabeth Pancotti. Our music is by Werner, and our logo is designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you in two weeks.